Good morning, and welcome to Rainbow Mennonite Church. We are glad you are here today. In my family growing up, we had a long tradition that every Sunday morning, my mother would make cinnamon rolls. And before we could eat them, this was about the only time we gathered as a family, we would um, recite portions of psalms. And one of the psalms was Psalm 100. And as children at a very early age, we learned this psalm. And we also learned how to say it in our sleep, in our stupor in the morning, and to say it as fast as we could so we could get the cinnamon rolls. Now today, I thought about saying that psalm by memory. But instead, as our gathering uh, time and prayer, I'd like to share a reflection on Psalm 100. This is your day, God, a day to be hopeful, to be thankful. Make joyful music to God. Pull out all the stops on the organ. Use your voice, your hands and feet to fill the room with music. It is God who made us. We are not self-made. It is God in creation and creativity. God is knowledge, wisdom, discovery. God is compassion, truth, and passion. We are God's people. We are God's city. So even though you have a list of things to do or doubts, anxiety, or sadness, come, listen, be present, see and feel love. God is good, and her love endures forever, and her faithfulness continues to all generations. Last week, as I sat on the California coast, hoping to see some whales, it was a little early for that, as I was sitting there, I asked my friend that I was traveling with uh, what she thought of the book of Jonah, which of course features a lot of water and a whale or a sea monster. Well, this friend immediately burst into song, singing, It Ain't Necessarily So from Gershwin's 1935 opera, Porgy and Bess. Have have some of you seen that? I have not seen it, Uh, but I love this song now. I've listened to it all week, and we're going to hear just a clip of it in a second. So, Jesse, get it ready. So, a character named Sportin' Life, great name, right? Sportin' Life, he's a shady character, And he expresses doubt in this song about several characters or stories in the Bible. Now, something I learned about this song is that it's sung in the tradition of a Jewish blessing chant. So you'll you'll hear um, this great call and response. So, Jesse, why don't you you play just a clip of it? It ain't necessarily so. It ain't necessarily so. It ain't necessarily so. The things that you're liable to read in the Bible, it ain't necessarily so. Little David was small, but oh my. Little David was small, but oh my. He fought big Goliath who laid down in diet. Little David was small, but oh my. Okay, 
in a whale. He made his home in that fish's abdomen. Oh, Jonah, he lived in a whale. Isn't that great? <laughs> Little Moses. So Mo- Moses is next. I think there's a couple, couple more characters, but you, you get the idea. Here's just a fun uh, historical note about this song. In 1943, in Nazi-occupied Denmark, the Danish underground um, uh, people would interrupt Nazi victory radio announcements by playing this song. It ain't necessarily so. Well, just like sport and life, we might have our doubts about characters or stories such as uh, that in Jonah, or we may doubt what our Sunday school teachers taught us or our parents taught us about these stories. It's been quite a while, I'll admit, since I studied Jonah, uh, so I really enjoyed the chance to revisit this short book. It's in your bulletin, just four chapters long. It's small print, um, but hopefully you'll, you'll take time to, to read this maybe during the week. So it's a whale of a book. <laughs> uh, One of the questions I asked two weeks ago when we were studying the book of Ruth, it's it's a question I want us to just think about as I go through this this wonderful book. Let's ask ourselves, why did this endure? Why has it been so treasured in song, in image, in poetry? Why has it endured? So for today... I want to just take us through kind of how, how Tara did, uh, maybe adding a little more detail. Um, and, I, and I should note here at the outset that one of my primary sources uh, for this recap um, is uh, a video about the book of Jonah uh, created by an organization called the Bible Project. They put out these wonderful short video clips uh, about each book of the Bible. And I found their... Their clip about Jonah is so wonderful. So, Jonah only appears one other time in the Bible. Okay? It's during the reign of Jeroboam II, one of Israel's worst kings. Jonah prophesied that this wicked king was going to be victorious. He would, um, God would find favor with him, he would win battles and territories. Now, there's another prophet that also prophesied of something different, that Jeroboam II would not be victorious, that God was not on his side, and that prophet was Amos. So right away, we have these dueling prophets, each saying their own prophecy. That's all we have about Jonah. Now, unlike most of the other prophetic books in the Bible, such as Amos, Micah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jonah doesn't speak a lot in these four chapters. It's a story about him, not a story of his words. This is very different than the other prophetic books in the Bible. So, at the beginning of the the book, God addresses Jonah and commissions him to go to Nineveh. Go to Nineveh and preach.
against the wickedness, the evil, the injustice. So it's not quite, they were just not being nice. This is wickedness. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, Israel's bitter enemy. They had a reputation for such gruesome acts of violence. I'll spare you most of the details, but wearing skulls as necklaces, skinning victims alive. Jonah says, no way, God. And he sets out in the opposite direction, and he flees to Tarshish. He boards a ship to, as the text says, to flee the presence of the Lord. That phrase occurs three times in just the first chapter of Jonah. Jonah is fleeing the presence of the Lord. Jonah is getting as far away as he can from the presence of the Lord. Why? We aren't told yet. Jonah boards a ship full of pagan sailors. He goes down into the ship and he falls fast asleep. God, meanwhile, is said to send a huge storm to wake up his rebellious prophet. Well, the sailors certainly have, have God's attention. Jonah is still sleeping. The sailors determine that Jonah might be bringing this calamity. If he brought the storm, maybe he can stop the storm. So they wake up Jonah and they say, you have some explaining to do. Jonah admits to being a Hebrew who worships the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. And yes, he is trying to flee that God. Well, the storm, meanwhile, is growing in strength. And so Jonah tells the sailors, just throw me overboard. He'd rather be dead than respond to the presence of God. But the sailors, it's so interesting, they don't want the blood of an innocent man on their hands. So they, the pagan sailors, they row hard, and they pray, and they repent. And only when the storm still wouldn't stop do they decide, eventually, reluctantly, to throw Jonah on the board. And the storm ceases. But the God who made the sea and dry land wasn't done with Jonah. They have a complicated relationship. Just wait. God provided a large fish, sea monster, to swallow up Jonah. And he resided in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights. Some call this Jonah's watery tomb. But unlike most tombs, it's his passageway back to life. So Jonah prays inside the belly of the whale. That's chapter 2, okay, his prayer in chapter 2. He doesn't ever really apologize to God for not listening. But Jonah does thank God for not abandoning him. And then he promises God that from this point forward, he will keep his vow, and he will obey. 
So the whale vomits Jonah back on land, and he's given a second chance to go to Nineveh and preach what God tells him to preach. Now, Nineveh, we are told, is a gigantic city, a three days' walk across it. On day one, Jonah preaches a very short sermon, five words in Hebrew. Forty more days, and Nineveh shall be overturned. That's his sermon. No mention of what they did wrong, or who, or what will overturn them. No mention of God, or how they should respond. Again, it's a short sermon. The bare minimum. Some see Jonah here trying to sabotage his own prophetic mission. Well, meanwhile, and surprisingly, the people respond. The king, the wicked king, the city, even the cows in this story start to repent. It's supposed to be funny, I think. We, we miss a lot of the humor in the Bible, I think. Just like the pagan sailors earlier, these wicked people are more responsive than God's own prophet. And God sees that and responds. God changes God's mind in this story and decides not to bring calamity, after all, to that wicked city. Now, many commentators over the centuries see a play on words here. Jonah announces that the city would be overturned This could mean the city will be overthrown, but it can also mean transformed, turned over, changed. So Jonah's prophecy came true. It was indeed overturned, turned over. Well, this makes Jonah fuming mad. And this is when we finally learn in the book why Jonah keeps fleeing the presence of God. Why he didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. Surprisingly, Jonah, it wasn't that Jonah was afraid of the Ninevites per se. What Jonah was afraid of is that God might actually forgive them. Jonah's grievance against God is that God is too nice, too merciful, too compassionate. And Jonah wanted nothing to do with extending that same mercy. Can we blame him? Chapter 4, verse 2. Jonah says, This is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. Now, the story isn't over, but I, I just want us to pause here and soak that in. Jonah fled the presence of the Lord, fearing that God would be too compassionate and that he would be asked to participate in that compassion. This dilemma... This fear might be 
I find, the most relatable aspect of this story. Might we all have some Jonah in us? I know I do. Listen to what the great writer Anne Lamott says in her book, Plan B, that I think speaks to this dilemma. She says, I know the world is loved by God, as are all of its people. But it is much easier to believe that God hates or disapproves of or punishes the same people I do. These are the thoughts going on inside me much of the time, she admits. I can relate to that. Well, back to Jonah. Jonah asked God to, once and for all, just take his life. He says twice towards the end, It is better for me to die than to live. We don't know if this is because he feels ashamed or if he would rather die than see his enemies thrive. We're not sure. God, in response, asks him a simple yet profound question. Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah, is your anger justified? Jonah doesn't like this question. Jonah walks to the edge of the city to sulk for a while, waiting to see what becomes of Nineveh. But God isn't done with Jonah. Again, these two have a complicated relationship, hot and cold. What happens next is so bizarre and unsettling. If we thought the, bizarre, the whale was bizarre, listen to what happens next. God, we are told, appoints a bush to shade Jonah as he sulks in the hot sun. To save him, we are told, from his discomfort. God is saving him from his discomfort. For once, Jonah is happy. (laughs) Then, God sends a worm to attack the bush. So the bush withers. The sultry east wind and sun beat down on Jonah, and Jonah grows so faint. For the second time, actually third time, all he wants to do is die. And again, God asks, Jonah, is your anger justified? Take my life, God. It is better for me to die than to live, he says. Well, the book ends with a question. With God asking Jonah, he says, God says this, Jonah, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? That's how the book of Jonah ends, leaving Jonah, leaving us with that question to wrestle with. 
Now, Jonah is also mentioned a couple times in the New Testament by Jesus. Uh, One time is in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus makes a reference to Jonah when Jesus is asked to perform a sign showing him to be the Messiah to the skeptical Pharisees and scribes. Matthew chapter 12 is a doozy of a text uh, itself, but here is just a little bit of what Jesus says about Jonah. So he's speaking here to the Pharisees and scribes who are daring him to, to show a sign. Jesus says, No sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so for three days and three nights the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. And the people of Nineveh will rise up because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah and see something greater than Jonah is here. Well, there could be a lot we could unpack in just this text alone, and we'll save that for another day. (laughs) There is really a lot to unpack in the story of Jonah itself. And there's so much here that I'm actually going to extend into next Sunday and do a Jonah part two. Um, I've enjoyed this, this story so much. And uh, quite frankly, I have some more arguing to do, especially with God in this story. Um, not quite ready to let God off the hook for being so terrible to, to Jonah. But for today and in the little bit of, of time remaining, I want to, want to share that one of the reasons we started this series on character studies uh, in the Bible is that Melissa Schrader, is she here today, Melissa and Nick? Shoot, I was really hoping she'd be here. I'll, I'll tell her later. Um, she pulled me aside uh, recently and said, Ruth, I, I, I really want to learn more about Jonah. She named her newborn son Jonah, right? She asked, Was he bad? (laughs) Well, I'll tell her this too, but I, after studying this all week, I think he's quite relatable. (laughs) Really? I like what one commentator um, says about um, the power of Jonah here in this story. She says, there's nothing that can separate us from God's love. There is nothing that is so awful and heinous and barbaric and evil that would have God stomp off and say, forget it. This is what Jonah teaches us. Now, we might stomp off like Jonah, but in God's love, God doesn't. Nor does God forsake Jonah for stomping off. So I appreciate this lovely story. It's bizarre, but it's lovely. Because can't we identify with this desire to run and flee? Sure, loving one's enemies may sound great in theory. On the lips of Jesus... 
but it's much harder to put into practice consistently, especially the greater the crime, the greater the grievance. And this is what I want to have us explore next week. But for now, I'll say this. I don't believe, personally, in a God that would have us easily submit to the enemy or oppressor or really anyone who does harm. People need to be held accountable for atrocities, crimes, injuries, harm committed. We aren't called to submit easily. But I think we are called to submit our enemies to God's care. To submit ourselves to God's compassion. So perhaps the gem of Jonah is that Jonah teaches us that by not fleeing the presence of God, perhaps over time, in community, we will loosen our grip on resentment or the grip resentment has on us. Perhaps within the presence of God, we will find ways of refusing to oppose evil on its own terms, offering our enemies or the people who continue to hurt us the possibility in God of being turned over, overturned, transformed. Again, I'll share just a brief quote by Anne Lamott on this subject. She says, I've known for years that resentments don't really hurt the person we resent, but that they do hurt us. Are we willing, she asks, to give up some of our hatred? Identify more and more with the humanity of others, even the people we most despise. Most days, that call feels rather impossible. We will not get this call right all the time, or absolutely. But we try, together, by the grace of God, we try. So if you see Nick and Melissa, who named their son Jonah, you can tell them that, yes, Jonah was a rebellious prophet. But he serves to remind us of so much more, including the compassionate grace of God that is far greater than we can even imagine or really put into practice ourselves. That is the hope of this bizarre, unsettling, beautiful story. So may it be to this compassionate God that we pray, that we sing, that we shape our lives toward in response. Part two next week.